Welcome to Brown Bag, a podcast series looking at the interconnections between media, social media in particular, democracy, politics, and technology from a global south perspective. My name is Sanjana Hattatwa, and I am a special advisor at the ICT for Peace Foundation. discussion of outside of circles like ours and social and civil activists, the rights group, about what the responsibility really means beyond just making money for the shareholders. You cannot have for-profit, mono, huge, megalithic companies that you know, eclipse whole countries in terms of size and uh, income. Be reliant on profit making model and yet have trust and safety teams that at best try to mitigate the harms, very real harms that sometimes result in deaths in, in countries um, as sufficient. These companies rely on scandals and anything inflammatory to get their ads in and the more views you get the more you're going to attract ads today i'm speaking with elena noor who is currently a director at the asia society policy institute and also very recently as of the time of the podcast uh, recording uh, uh, an advisor to the ICT for Peace Foundation. Elena, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Listen, I don't know where to begin because your scope of work and experience is uh, crossing many geographies and many disciplines. Um, but I thought we'll spend some time today speaking uh, as Asia, perhaps, and looking at uh, what's going on and wrong uh, and the challenges and the pitfalls and the potential as well on social media today. And again, there are one doesn't know quite where to begin. But listen, going back to your experience, um, you have uh, worked on governance and tech and uh, CVE, countering violent extremism and uh, online, you know, terrorism and violent extremism content online. And I suppose also to give the listeners a sense of where you're coming from, um, from the time you began work, Elena, to 2022, what to your mind has changed the most significantly in that scope of work? So, for example, some would say the Christchurch call at GIFCT and uh, the Christ, uh, rather the Christchurch mass uh, 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 terrorist attacks leading to the Christchurch call and the GIFCT and, you know, that whole, uh, you know, uh, family of work. But to your mind, what's changed the most dramatically in your life experience? Well, first of all, I think it's a good place to start with being Asian. Second of all, I'm going to try to answer your question without dating myself because when I started working on PCVE issues, online was such a huge component of it. And I remember going way, way back to the age of the dinosaurs when uh, online content was just making an appearance and people were concerned about how this would affect uh, extremist activity and terrorist uh, violence. And I think for me, going back to a span of, oh, I don't know, a few decades, let's just leave it at that. 
um, has been really the speed and magnitude of um, how much online content has changed the discourse around uh, violent extremism. And that's including the discourse amongst extremists themselves, but also how people like us and in law enforcement and obviously with big tech are trying to grapple with it. Because I think it's just escalated beyond anyone's expectations and control, really. Um, but at the same time, I want to say that not all of it has fully surprised me, unfortunately, because whatever we've seen that has been happening online has really, and you know this very well, Sanjana, from your own work, that none of it is really new and has just been there dormant in a way in the offline space and has just been brought to life with uh, the online world. No, 100%, 100%. Um, and the reason I ask that is that, and I don't know whether you share, and it's not a leading question, so feel free to contest me, but part of the frustration of working for well over a decade in this domain um, through grounded research is that so much of the discourse is not of us and by us, but is about us. Um, and that's been fairly frustrating. And that is also then rare, as flawed as it may be, because not unlike Hollywood movies, all the aliens crash in New York or LA. You know, all of the disasters, everything that happens to threaten the world, the end of the world and the savior of the world comes from either coast of the United States. And that to me sounds like very much the academic discourse and the platform governance and oversight as it stands today as well. So, I mean, has that been your experience as well? Because for me, frankly, it's been quite frustrating. Yeah, and I have no grounds to contest what you just said because uh, a lot of it is at least presented as things having happened to us in the global majority world, um, but precipitated by something that's beyond our borders. Yeah. Right? And it so happens that we in the global majority are essentially the biggest markets for many of these tech companies that are in Silicon Valley or in Shenzhen or wherever outside of places like South Asia and Southeast Asia. That's slowly changing, but not enough. Um, and a lot of the discourse, as you rightly said, has been really located in and around and about what takes place in the United States, what takes place in Europe. And you see this actually modeled by governments in Southeast Asia, the region I know best uh, itself, because you have the GDPR, for example, as a template for many of the data protection laws in and around Southeast Asia. Now, whether or not they apply perfectly is obviously something to be argued about. And I think you and I would both say, no, but it hasn't been applied perfectly at all. Uh, but that's the model that we have, and it's convenient to just adopt and adapt without taking into account uh, local contexts. And I know this is something you feel very strongly about because we've talked about this and you emphasize like, how much um, the local context is actually not being taken into account with the rules that are being set in these places in the US and Europe. And may I ask, how have you been addressing that? Um, because it's one thing to talk about it and be 
I mean, I'll say it out loud. It's one thing to be talk about it and be angry about it. But I think that, you know, um, we both are quite privileged insofar as we have a voice, for better or for worse. Um, and it'll be interesting to hear from you how you have been working to address the, those gaps and that asymmetry. You know, to be honest, it's very difficult and frustrating for me because there's not a lot of data that is um, coming out of one. Uh, these places in the majority world, yeah. but two, there's not enough analysis that's also coming out as a result of this lack of information and data beyond, you know, how many users are on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Um, and you don't see much of that analysis, I think, partly because there there is just no visibility of what's going on. Um, and two, I think it also sometimes boils down to language. There's a hierarchy of presenting this knowledge and, you know, whatever I've said actually might not be true. There might be plenty of data on the ground in places in Latin America, uh, in South Asia, but maybe they produce in local languages that don't have the reach of English language articles and publications. And so um, those of us from the majority were also blind because for me, at least, you know, I, I read and write in English. And so maybe I'm blind to a lot of these uh, journal articles or scholarly work that's being produced on actually what's happening on the ground. So I think to sum it up, my feelings are just frustration and exasperation, really. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. Um, listen, I mean, we could talk about this till kingdom come, I think, but I want you to kind of grapple with some of the issues and pick your brains about what's going on as we speak. Um, I don't know, I was going to call it off the cuff, the elephant in the room, um, but it seems to be more like, you know, the bull in the China shop uh, in terms of what Twitter has become under Elon Musk. Um, and a lot of it actually is in the public domain, right? I mean, um, what the platform has very quickly become, um, the fears of what it could become uh, uh, and turn up as or into... Uh, I think these are all in the public domain. Uh, so I don't want to kind of pick your brains on that. But um, I would imagine, and I can, of, of course, only extrapolate from my um, work in South Asia, that Twitter is not an unimportant platform in Southeast Asia uh, with a very, very large user base. And as is the case globally, that packs a punch above its weight. Now, is that right, Elita? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you take a look at the figures, it doesn't really matter which source you look at. Uh, there seems to be a consensus that you know, markets and countries like Indonesia and the Philippines, partly because of their sheer size of the population, are some of the largest user bases for a platform like Twitter, not to mention a country like Myanmar, yeah. where basically the internet is Facebook. And, and part of that, by the way, was deliberately orchestrated and designed by Meta, right? Because free internet, hey, through Facebook. And that's become the sole source of knowledge and news. 100%. You know, the tier zero stuff uh, is really quite disturbing. I've come back to Sri Lanka as I record this after three years, and I've seen the front page ads on newspapers um, that give um, free data for TikTok free data for YouTube, free data for Facebook, right? So they're tier zero services. And I was just thinking to myself, and it's the first time that I articulated it, you know, you know, I wonder what responsibility telcos have through those packages for the spread of hate and harm 
uh, in collusion with and in conjunction with, of course, what the platforms aren't doing. And, you know, that's a broader discussion as well. And you see that, of course, in your part of the world and Myanmar in particular. And and that's an important point. I think that a lot of telcos haven't been discussing in in public at least, right? Because essentially what it boils down to is both telcos and tech platform companies are essentially profit-driven commercial enterprises. And there hasn't been this corresponding discussion of outside of circles like ours and social and civil activists, rights group, about what the responsibility really means beyond just making money for the shareholders. Yeah, yeah. And actually, <laughs> again, parenthetical, yeah, parenthetical uh, a diversion from the parenthesis that we were already on, uh, one of the largest telcos in Sri Lanka is actually Malaysia Road, right? It's it's yeah. a subsidiary of a Malaysian company. I won't name it, but yeah, was historically, <laughs> it's historically had, you know, we've had issues with the company's approach to privacy, to data rights, um, you know, to basic fundamental rights of users, um, to uh, uh, basically a revolving door between the Ministry of Defense and, uh, you know, a call that is made to surveil users, a whole spectrum of issues, right? I mean, you know, and that's the problem with authoritarian and autocratic states, you know, with social media and these telcos. Right. And part of it, I think, is there's this facade of guardrails, right? So as long as you have, for example, data protection legislation in place, and companies abide by these local laws, then they're all right. Yeah. But I think we have to go deeper, few steps prior to, you know, what contributed to this legislation drafting about what it all really means in the local context. Yeah, no, 100%. And of course, in context, Sri Lanka, you have the military political complex and, you know, uh, revolving doors to everybody's apartments and bedrooms and offices. And, you know, it's all it's all very, very murky. But I want to get back to Twitter at Basque and, uh, you know, Again, it's not to kind of regurgitate what's already out in the public domain and in the media, but in your opinion, what to your mind is the risk to users in, I would say, R, but you could answer the question in your part of the world as a consequence of um, Musk's acquisition of the platform and what is very evident the platform is becoming and already is. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this... Uh duality of a dilemma, right? So Twitter pre-Musk was essentially a relatively sp safe space for civil activists, civil rights activists, um, and grassroots activists to basically counter authoritarian narratives that were out there. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, there was a real threat, I think, and, and this can be contested, of course, but certainly this is a narrative from some governments, but also I think legitimate in, in countries like mine, for example, with a uh, history of inter-ethnic violence, perhaps not as prevalent, unfortunately, as in Sri Lanka, for example. But there was a real sense that too much free speech for uh, the American context could actually really rip the social fabric of a young, fledgling, post-colonial nation. And I think there was acquiescence in a way by many in uh, and around Southeast Asia because of this fear that, you know, having too much freedom of expression on a platform like Twitter that was almost unregulated pre-Musk um, could contribute to that. But of course, the paradox now is that under Musk's leadership, 
under his championing of free speech, ironically, um, that actually might exacerbate some of these concerns because, for example, his reinstatement of Trump's account has actually been hailed by a lot of, and, and you know this, and we all know this, no need to regurgitate what's in the press, uh, can embolden, you know, a lot of the things that uh, we're all concerned about that might incite hate and violence in multi-ethnic societies. And so on the one hand, yay free speech, but on the other hand, er, let's think about free speech again. No, I, yeah, I mean, it's 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 complicated, right? I mean, also, I would also say that in our part of the world, we do have equivalents of masks, we do have equivalents of fox. Um, we do have equivalent equivalents of uh, Alex Jones, um, but they are more diverse and dispersed. Um, and with the democratization of disinfo's production that's afforded by um, the very low cost to access, produce, and promote harms online, um, in our part of the world, my fear is that authoritarian governments and their proxies in industry, the private sector and media will now latch on to a platform like Twitter to create a platform that really hasn't, to my mind, Elena, existed before. I mean, you've had the 4chans and 8kuns and the dark webs and the E2EE and you have other platforms, but Twitter is quite, you know, if Twitter becomes a 4chan, which is kind of where it's going, that's quite unprecedented. And so it's not just, you know, the, the people that we talk about, like the Trumps of the world, but it's just becomes a toxic tapestry of, uh, of people, particularly against you, for example, of misogynists of, of really horrible people taking over the platform. And that's kind of my worry, too. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think just to maybe push back a little, right, obviously, social media magnifies and amplifies all of this. But I wonder how much of it is simply a reflection of that level of toxicity increasing in real life that's being reflected on uh, a platform like Twitter. I would say it's a symbiosis. I mean, I think academic research points out to the fact that um, it exists in a in a in a in a synergistic manner, and that uh, with Trump, for example, there's um, academic research that suggests that, and I'm, I'm on, and I'm not making this up. That when he tweeted um, racially laden tweets when he was out golfing, the offline harms against the Muslims in America increased. Uh, and so his Twitter account was directly linked to offline harms. And of course, consequently, the offline harms lead to a, I suppose, a permissive environment uh, on, on social media where you celebrate it, right? I mean, you, you wrote about it, you openly espouse it. Um, there's little to no pushback around it. And then it becomes a toxic culture that then goes down a vicious cycle. And I'm certainly, I mean, going out of our respective domains and, and geographic areas and homes. I mean, I'm, this is what I'm studying in New Zealand. Um, and it's really something else where, you know, you, you know, <laughs> we think that it's because of our markets that social media companies don't give a hoot. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to be the case they give a hoot about any market. Right, right. And and I think the other piece of this is because of um, the conflict that or conflicts that platforms like Twitter have been um, 
proxy to inflaming. Yeah. It, a lot of the diaspora that have left many of these countries, quite perversely, in fact, actually relying on a platform like Twitter to remain in touch with what's going on in the, the countries that they left. Yeah. And so you have diaspora refugee communities who are already vulnerable, uh, still reliant on a platform like Twitter because that's the only way that they can yeah. connect to their homeland or to their fellow uh, citizens to organize or simply to, to keep up with what's new. So here's the other side to that as well, Elena. Uh, you know, the global growth of Hindutva um, is the flip side of that, right? Where they actively target members of the diaspora community, including academics, who articulate a position, a principled academic research grounded position against the growth of right-wing extremism um, that is uh, linked to Modi uh, and uh, his government and the BJP today. And if you have a hint of something, you know, just just a hint that you have this global uh, pushback, uh, and it's really quite something. Uh, and it's not fun. It's not. It's actually quite boring and dangerous and violent. Right. But also, I think that speaks to India's sheer size, uh, just in terms of population, but also its population on spaces like Twitter and, and Facebook and elsewhere, right? And so that uh, message is amplified so many more times than it would be from a country, a much smaller country elsewhere, for example. Yeah, yours or mine. But, you know, that brings me to the, to the other thing about, I mean, it's, it's a two-part in, in the sense that, you know, India is, for me, the elephant in the room, right? I mean, we talk about GDPR, we talk about issues related to policy on both sides of the Atlantic, and they are important because fundamentally these companies are, are you know, uh, governed by, for better or for worse, by where they are housed or owned in um, or grew out from or registered at. Um, but having said that, you know, um, with regards to the specificity of India or with regards to the global majority in general, I think that it's a given now that SM platforms are flailing and failing. I mean, in 2022, right? I mean, in the year of our Lord, in 2022, they are still struggling to understand us. Uh, and it's an ongoing conversation. I mean, you know, it's tiring, it's frustrating. You can't not but engage, but then you're like, come on, guys. I mean, you know, you have the best minds on planet Earth and you're still struggling, right? So, you know, do you think that the manner in which platform governance is currently constructed, architected, inhabited, uh, and um, enacted, that there is a structural problem there. That we can talk about stopgap measures and plasters and, you know, you know, trying to do this, that, and the other thing to kind of um, stop the worst from occurring. But is there something like structural racism that is at the core of the beast that needs to shift and change in your mind uh, if we are going to grasp the nettle of the unbridled growth of hate, hurt, and harms in our part of the world on these platforms, reflecting, of course, as you said correctly, what lies offline, but also contributing to it significantly. Yeah, I think there are two dimensions to that structural challenge. And the first is, I think, pretty obvious that you cannot have for-profit mono huge megalithic companies that, you know, eclipse whole countries in terms of size and uh, income 
be reliant on this profit-making model and yet have trust and safety teams that at best try to mitigate the harms, very real harms that sometimes result in deaths in, in countries um, as sufficient. These companies rely on scandals and anything inflammatory to get their ads in. And the more views you get, the more you're going to attract ads. And so it, I think they're basically at odds, this aim of having this profit-making machine on the one hand, but having, you know, trust and safety teams with the best people, best uh, intention people on the team trying to make a dent in the damage that's being done because of this profit-driven machine. And then I think the other dimension of the structural challenge is, uh, if I heard you right, you talked about structural racism. And I think there's certainly a, a bit of that um, if we're honest with ourselves, because these issues don't become an issue and a problem until it happens in a place like the United States or in Europe. A lot of these issues, you know, you and I have seen on the ground in our respective countries um, and suddenly, you know, they only become an issue when violence is threatened against populations in the United States because in the January 6th riot in Washington, D.C., for example, or when uh, President Trump gets elected with all his dog whistling and hate spewing speeches uh, in 2016 when he's elected. So why is this only suddenly a problem when it affects a country like the United States or, or somewhere else in Europe and not when it affects uh, brown and black countries elsewhere in the world. Or brown and black communities in those countries. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. As they would say, I think that, you know, they've had a handle on some of these issues um, for, for, for years and years prior. And they would argue, I suppose, to speak to your earlier point, actually before social media as well. Yes. <laughs> well, yes. Generations <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I want to complicate the matter a bit more because I'm speaking to a significant intellect and then ask you in your experience, how do you then, well, how do I frame this? If it is the case that we need fundamentally different structures of governance on the lines that you articulated, do you believe that the platforms as they stand today, and I'm not for the moment talking about the Fidibus and Mastodon, right? I'm talking about the Silicon Valley platforms, the Fang platforms, if you will. If you will. Um, no matter what you do with around trust and safety, you're talking, I mean, Facebook, I don't know, it's 3 billion plus um, users, right? I mean, I don't know what there it is right now. And the growth may be slowing, but can you have a global TNS policy that is a blanket policy for 3 billion plus people is one question. And then I suppose the second question somewhat connected is if it is the case, Elena, that these platforms can't govern themselves and that regulation is essential, what do you then say to a Modi government that wants to regulate? What do you say to a Bongbong bong Marcos that wants to regulate? What do you say to a Rajapaksa in Sri Lanka or a Vikramasinghe government that wants to regulate? You know, how do you answer that? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, thanks for throwing those bombshell questions. Um, I'm going to try to pretend to sound intelligent in answering them. <laughs> I think one on the trust and safety issue, look, I'll, I'll give credit where it's due, right? And the fact that there are trust and safety teams on these big tech platforms actually says something. It might just be superficial, but I'm sure you and I both know people on these trust and safety teams who are really earnestly doing their best to mitigate the harm. Well, just to interject, all the people I know at Twitter are gone. So. <laughs> yeah, so that's part of the problem, right? Yeah. Like, because, I mean, we know Elon Musk's philosophy. Um, go hard, right? Just go hard, go fast and break things. And you can't, again, going back to my original point, you can't have this profit-driven machine machinery dictate how your company is going to run and then have these, oh, by the way, here's a trusted safety team. And, you know, we're located in all these different regions, so we have a handle on what's going on on the ground. And then gut them out when you decide that it's not working uh, to make enough money for you. So I don't know, it sounds like on the trust and safety issue, there needs to be, it's not enough to have an oversight board, it's not enough to have uh, in-house trusted safety teams because uh, the overriding motivation by these companies is to make as much money as they can. Yeah. As perhaps we need a completely different model to govern this, which gets to the, your question about regulation. I think a lot of companies will say, oh, we appreciate regulation because at least it provides us with predictability about how to operate our business in a certain market. And I'm actually quite sympathetic to a certain degree of regulation. Uh, I do think it provides an opportunity for civil society uh, in those countries to push back when they can against you know whatever regulations are being done by governments that they elected or did not elect, that's the case to me. Yeah. And so at least there's a check and balance in that sense, even if it doesn't always work out in the favor of, uh, you know, these activists that are trying to act against authoritarian governments. Um, so I think there is a plus point to regulation uh, in terms of accountability. That's not always how it works out, but I don't see an alternative in letting companies govern themselves because it's clearly not working out. Well, it's clearly not working out for anybody, actually. And to be fair, I also by the companies themselves as they are, um, I suppose, publicly realizing as well. My concern is that um, they did this, uh, well, Meta did this code of safety. I forget what the entire thing is called, but they did the entity that's responsible for addressing digital harms in the in, you know, in Arthur or New Zealand. They did uh, a code of safety, which was heralded as the world's first it was essentially a meta-drafted text. And it was really bizarre for me to come to Sri Lanka and then be presented with, and I'm, you know, listeners might find this hard and think it's hyperbole, but it's not. It's literally a copy-paste of that same document that is being proposed as a code of safety uh, in Sri Lanka in a process that's also funded by meta. So it seems to be the case that meta is going around the world um, and for whatever reason, and I can think of a few, is putting these codes of safety up, um, undermining civil society work in this area around regulatory oversight, 
and then saying that that's sufficient in order for the respective um, countries and geographies to avoid more stringent regulatory oversight of the company. Um, so that's something that's happening right now as we speak, Elena. Yeah, I, mean, I can completely believe that because I, I'm sure it's happened at other places before. I've heard uh, similar anecdotes in different parts of the world too. But I think what you're seeing now is that companies are taking the initiative to provide the self-regulation as an industry because yeah. governments are not uh, doing enough. We're not doing things quickly enough to provide them that clarity and predictability for their businesses, right? And you see this with other big tech companies and other areas with, with algorithmic uh, regulation, for example. And so, I, I mean, I don't know, does the fault lie with tech companies for initiating this? Or I don't know, it's gray area because they would also say arguably and hypothetically, um, um, and with some merit, so they're not just being hypocritical, also that, you know, listen, we are bringing this out because the governments would come out with something far worse. So it's not because we love you, but because in a sense that, you know, at least we have this as the bulwark against something that might be more censorious and far more detrimental in the guise of holding us accountable that actually um, surveys citizenry much more. So, you know, <laughs> these are the challenges yeah. of our time. And, and they will say they've done their stakeholder consultation right? because of the trust and safety teams um, and, and our right. focus. And my response to that would, would, I mean, I would have to edit it out of the podcast, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, that would be my honest response. But I think those of us who have been involved in it, you and I and so many others would, you know, just have a bit of a more cynicism around that kind of engagement. Um, you know, I did want to kind of end by going back to something that you just passingly mentioned about the algorithmic, you know, harms and, you are part of the Christchurch Call Advisory Network. Um, and uh, mid-year, I can't remember exactly when, but a couple of months ago, uh, before the acquisition was completed by Musk, uh, PM Ardern of New Zealand, um, you know, announced this um, wonderful research project looking at the degree to which, or hoping to look at the degree to which uh, algorithms contributed to um, the amplification of harms with a view to stymie, if not stopping um, that. Uh, and Twitter was one, they were going to work with Microsoft and with a third party partner, OpenMind, I think it was. Um, now, I'm not entirely sure where it's at right now, but the call released its uh, research framework um, recently, proactively in New Zealand, and it's absolutely fantastic in the sense that it tries to bring the sunlight of scrutiny to a really hard issue. And it also tries to set the foundation for future research that allows researchers without um, necessarily the resources of the Christchurch call to do the same work, which is of course speaks to me and I know it speaks to you because our part of the world, we don't have the money. It's not that we don't have the knowledge or the experience or the expertise or the interest, but we don't have the money to kind of compete with some of the big universities to do this kind of research. So it, it mattered a lot that they were kind of opening up that as a new foundation for this kind of work moving ahead. But all of that said, what, I mean, I don't want to get into the post-Musk Twitter space again, but how much do you think it is important that we have a handle on what the hell is going on in the black box world 
uh, in the black boxes of these respective companies, which they assure us right now through their transparency reporting every quarter or so is doing great work to you know uh, to, to to stop all the hate and harm, and it's always a a fraction of a percentage we are told, and so on and so forth. Um, but what do you think is really the state of play, Elena? Uh, and again, going back to where we started with our language, right? I mean that's really important with Malaysian, with uh, with all the dialects, um, with Tamil, with with Sinhalese, and you know it, with Burmese, which is only spoken in in Myanmar and Sri Lanka. You know, so those dimensions I don't think are always in the equation. So, uh, you know, if you can make any sense of the broad question that I posed, I suppose to distill it would be: What do you think about um, grasping the nettle of algo harms, and uh, from a from from an Asian perspective? I mean, I think it's absolutely fundamentally important. What is the state of play? A little disturbing and um, disappointing, really, because. At least in Southeast Asia, so much of the discussion on anything digital, anything algorithmic, anything AI, ML, is really just about how much money can be made of a digital platform. It's all about the digital economy. You look at any number of policy reports that are out there. It's all about how much employment can be created and how much GDP growth can be generated by the digital economy, whether it's e-commerce or using any of these social media platforms to promote MSMEs and, you know, to hawk their goods, essentially. There's almost no public discussion about what algorithmic farms will do to our very fragile, multi-ethnic, multilingual societies. And as a result, there's no consciousness about whether or not we're contributing to the data sets, whether it's linguistically, whether it's by ethnicity, any number of those, or even by different perspectives. You and I talked a little bit about indigenous knowledge systems. Uh, so many of our countries have indigenous communities that are already marginalized and oppressed to begin with, but how they're factored in or not into these uh, platforms and algorithms is something that's not even being seriously contemplated. Uh, and so unfortunately, I'm a little, um, I'm a little down about where the state is right now because we haven't even begun to be conscious of these harms and whether or not we should be having a seat at the table in fashioning some of these narratives about what we're going to do with algorithms. And here's the thing, right? I mean, I mean, you know, I don't want to prolong this anymore, but as we speak, as we say that, and I agree with you, these industries are extracting their repression. Right? They are they are they are taking our knowledge. They are taking indigenous knowledge. They're taking our corpora uh, linguistically. Uh, they are helping uh, police brutality. Uh, you know, through through everything that the police uh, and the intelligence you know organizations and apparatus are using in our part of the world. So, I would agree with you. Insofar as that we need a seat at the table, but I just wonder how much of harm it will take before we do, because that's not stopping. Yeah, and and I think that is what has got me despondent, because I, I think until our the the social fabric of our community is completely destroyed, but we begin to realize, wait a second, we needed yeah. to have had this discussion yeah. fifty years ago. Hey, listen, I mean, I want to ask the final question not to end up with despondency. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you know, for what it's worth, I think we have enough of that in the world. Um, 
Um, and of course, you know, the Nobel Peace Laureate Maria Ressa and her new book and the book tour uh, is going to look at this um, very, very carefully as well. I haven't read the book, but I want to read it. Um, my take, Elena, is that you and I are both on social media. We are not going to get out of it anytime soon. Um, and then there is the pro-social as well as the anti-social, right? So um, there's a simultaneous helping and then there's a simultaneous harming. Um, and that's what I think for me it makes it so complicated in my part of the world because we can't just say hash, hashtag delete Facebook. We can't just say hashtag Twitter migration to Mastodon. Um, we just can't pack up and leave. Um, I made the point of, uh, a fortnight ago looking at hashtags on Sri Lanka and South Asia on Mastodon, and that is none. So the great Twitter migration is absent. It's a white Mastodon. I don't know when other gradations of melanin are going to come to Mastodon, and I hope soon. But, you know, for me, that's what makes it so interesting and fundamental too. So, for example, 22's, uh, 2022's Aragal, the great struggle that we had in Sri Lanka used social media. It wouldn't have existed in a sense. It was obviously not the consequence of social media, but it was vastly aided by social media. So, you know, in India, also in your part of the world, which I find quite fascinating in the Philippines, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, um, you know, even in, in terms of uh, civil society activism in Singapore, what do you think is that liminal nature, you know, inhabiting not the extremes of it, but looking at the potential of social media to help democracy, um, what, what gives you hope? And for listeners who can't see Elena right now, she gave a, a long, long pause and a really sad face as she's struggling to answer that question. I am indeed. Um, but I'm going to try to end on, a, on an optimistic note. And for me, I see that there is hope in that a lot of the voters that we've seen who have swung whole political campaigns, for example, arguably in the Philippines, but also in Malaysia, the rise of the conservative party that many have said uh, at this early stage was premised on their successful TikTok campaign has alerted us that we need to be paying more attention to some of these harms a little more seriously and their impact on our societies. So that awareness that this has created, as disturbing as it might be, quite actually, ironically, also gives us a little more optimism and hope um, for us all to be a little better in how we interact on social media and what we expect of ourselves and tech companies uh, to respond to some of the harms that have been ongoing. That's a, that's a very, very good note to end on, Elena. Thanks so much again on this uh, uh, meandering uh, conversation, which I think uh, covered a lot of very interesting issues and from a perspective that only you could have brought to the table and the conversation. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you.